0: Dear friends, welcome to St. Paul's Cathedral. My name is Andrew Tremlett and as Dean of St. Paul's it's a great pleasure to welcome you here this evening. It's absolutely wonderful to see so many of you. This is the first adult learning event since 2019 in person in the cathedral. So it really is wonderful to see you all uh, in such good numbers. This evening we'll be thinking about, listening to, reflecting on the Psalms, the ancient and timeless prayer book at the heart of our faith. We'll be looking at three in particular, their themes of joy, lament, comfort, and reconciliation, and how they can draw us closer to God. Let me just explain the shape of the evening so you have a sense of where we're going. Each of the three Psalms we'll be reflecting on will be read aloud. You've got the text in front of you here in the leaflet, but I'd like to suggest that you just listen to them as they've always been read and spoken out loud, and you just absorb, as they've been for 3,000 years. Paula Gooder will then explain the psalms' meaning and their relevance for us, and then we'll hear it sung by our musicians over here. It'll be hard, I know, I know it'll be hard, but please save your applause for the very end of the evening rather than during the middle. We don't want to hurry, but we'll finish at about 7.45, something like that. So we hope very much you'll enjoy the relaxed pace of the evening and enjoy time to listen. After we've finished, there'll be a commercial break where Paula will have her books on sale over there with our lovely cathedral team, and she's kindly offered to stay and sign them if you'd like her to. We're delighted to put on these events for free, but if you'd like to make a donation as you leave to help us put on more, please do so. And now it gives me great pleasure to introduce our speaker, reader, and musicians. Dr. Paula Gooder is Canon Chancellor of St. Paul's Cathedral. She's one of the best known and best biblical scholars and teachers of our time, a prolific author. Her numerous books include Journaling the Psalms, winner of the best devotional book of 2022, and the inspiration for this evening's event. I'm delighted that she's here at St. Paul's as a distinguished colleague, And I'm really looking forward to hearing her speak this evening, as I know that each and every one of you are. Our reader this evening is Ajwar Ando. Thank you so much, Ajwar, for taking time out of your incredibly busy schedule to be with us here this evening, despite Addison Lee's attempts against uh, getting you here. (laughs) Ajwar is perhaps best known for playing Lady Danbury in Bridgerton, as well as starring roles in Doctor Who and Casualty, leading roles at the National Theatre and the Royal Shakespeare Company. She's also a licensed lay minister in the Church of England. And thank you also to to Will Fox, our acting organist and deputy director of music, who stepped in to conduct the singers of St. Paul's concert this evening, as Andrew Carwood is not able to be with us here. So... Please would you join me in welcoming them all.
1: So as the Dean has said, we're going to have three sections. But before we start the sections looking at the Psalms in detail, I just want to give you a brief introduction to the Psalms themselves. As he mentioned, the Psalms are a wonderful hymn book. Old Testament scholars call them the hymn book of the second temple. The second temple was the temple that Jesus worshipped in. And they have been prayed within the Jewish tradition for thousands of years, somewhere between 2,000 and 3,000 years. Getting biblical scholars to give you a date is as difficult as getting a builder to give you a quote, but will settle for somewhere between 2,000 and 3,000 years. But they have also been prayed constantly within the Christian tradition as well. And they are the prayers that have been prayed most often and for the longest time, from the time of Jesus to now. I did a little calculation this afternoon, because places where they are prayed most particularly are, of course, cathedrals. And in this cathedral, we pray the Psalms morning and night and we pray the whole psalter every month. So that means that every year, each psalm is prayed 12 times. So my maths is not great, but I calculate that since this building has been built, the psalms, each psalm has been prayed in this space over 3,500 times. And if you think back to the original cathedral that was founded in 604, then each psalm has been prayed in this place over 17,000 times. There is something beautiful to think that day in, day out, the psalms have been prayed here for hundreds of years. And as you will know, I'm sure, The psalms are an outpouring of emotion to God. And they are, in my view, the perfect example of communal prayer. Because, as you will know, the psalms contain a full range of emotions, from utter despair to sometimes impractical-sounding joy all the way through. And there's no way that each person, praying the psalm each day, will feel that range of emotion. But what we're doing is praying them on behalf of our brothers and sisters around the world and across the centuries. We pray them knowing that someone, somewhere today, feels like that. And someone, sometime through history, has felt like that. And as we pray them, we join our souls with theirs. It is a beautiful and profound communal act. And so we're looking at three different types of psalms tonight. Again, if you ask biblical scholars about the different types of psalms... We can talk for hours about how many categories you can come up with. I think the biggest categorization is 17 different types of psalms. Don't worry, we're not going to do 17 tonight. But one that I find the most helpful is by Walter Brueggemann, one of my great heroes in biblical scholarship. And he describes the different psalms as being psalms of orientation, by which he means, all is well in the world. God is in heaven, and I know that to be true. Psalms of disorientation. All is not well in the world, and I'm not sure where God is. And psalms of reorientation. All has been hellish, but now I can trace God's plan in the world. And that's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to do a psalm of orientation, Psalm 19, a psalm of disorientation, Psalm 69, and a psalm of reorientation, and also people's favorite psalm, Psalm 23. And as we go through them, I hope you'll be able to feel the rhythm of the m- emotion. So now let us hear Psalm 19.
2: Psalm 19, God's glory in creation and the law. To the leader, a Psalm of David. The heavens are telling the glory of God and the firmament proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech and night to night declares knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard, yet their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In the heavens, he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom from his wedding canopy and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the ends of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them and nothing is hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul The decrees of the Lord are sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is clear, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. But who can detect their errors. Clear me from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from the insolent. Do not let them have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my Rock and my Redeemer.
1: A psalm of orientation, if ever you've heard one. It begins by looking upwards and seeing the glory of God in the heavens and moves onwards. So let's reflect on it a little bit. Psalm 19 is regarded variously by Old Testament scholars. There are two particular opinions held by scholars on Psalm 19. Some scholars regard it as the problem child of the Psalter. Others regard it as the greatest piece of poetry within the Psalter, nay, even the greatest lyric of all time. That's C.S. Lewis. So which one is it? the problem child of the Psalter, or the greatest poem ever written. I'm tempted to go more in the C.S. Lewis direction than in the problem child direction. The reason why people call it the problem child of the Psalter is because you will have heard, when you heard it read, that there are two distinct themes in it. One of them is about creation, and recognizing God in creation. The other is the theme of law and following the law and the delight that that brings. Those two don't apparently go together. Until you realize that actually, it isn't a psalm of two halves, but a psalm of three thirds. When you recognize that, then actually, it all begins to make more sense. So verses 1 to 6 are indeed about creation. But then verses 7 to 10 are about the law and taking delight in the law. And then the third section is about the self and how you understand the self. Various scholars say that you should call these three sections Creation's speech, Torah's speech, and the Psalmist's speech. When you hear it like that, all of a sudden it pulls together and begins to make more sense. So we'll begin with verses 1 to 6. The heavens are declaring the glory of God. And if you know your Psalms, you'll be thinking of Psalm 8 at this moment, because Psalm 8 is a very, very similar idea. The idea that if you want to understand the nature of God, what do you do? You go outside and you look upwards. Or you could, if you were here tonight, sit in your seats and look upwards. The idea of the Psalmist is that the world is built with a dome above you. The idea is that the way in which the Hebrews understood the world was that the world was flat, and above it there was a dome, which they called the firmament, and above the dome ran the waters, and underneath the dome ran waters. Above the waters were the the dwelling place of God, heaven, and below the waters was the place where the dead go to, Sheol. So it's rather lovely to be thinking about the heavens under a dome that mimics the dome that the Hebrew writers believed was outside. And what they thought was that if you looked upwards, if you saw what was going on in the world, you could understand the glory of God. That word, glory, is one of the most important in the Bible and one of the hardest to define. If I were to say to you, do you know what the word glory means? You'd probably all say, yes, definitely. If I then were naughty and said to you, so tell me what it means, you might struggle a little bit more. So let me give you a little thumb sketch of what the word glory means because it helps in being able to understand what we're talking about here. The Hebrew word for glory is the word kavod. And the word kavod comes from the Hebrew word that means to be heavy, so glory is the weightiness of God. And the reason why they used that word to describe glory is that they believed that God was unknowable, beyond the heavens, unseeable, and unable to be able to be grasped with your mind. But occasionally, you could see something that was graspable, and what was graspable was the glory of God. That was what was weighty enough to come down from heaven to be revealed on earth. And so of course, if you're going to look around at creation, of course you see the glory of God, that which can be grasped with our minds. And you will probably know that the word glory also has the idea of light around it. And that's because God's nature is associated with light. So, therefore, the weightiness, the knowableness of God fizzes with light because that's the way that we encounter God. And at the end of this opening stanza, verses one to six, we have a lovely vision of the sun coming out and travelling through the heavens. And that's why you need to have a dome in your mind. So the sun comes out and goes round the dome and comes back in again on the other side. And what it does is that it shows everything that dwells in the world. One of the things that it becomes picked up later in in the psalm is that the the sun... Sorry, lost my words temporarily. That nothing is hidden from the heat of the sun. The sun travels through the heavens and nothing is hidden from it. Now, if you were alert while you were listening to the psalm, you will know that later on in the psalm, the psalmist talks about hidden faults. If the heavens declare the glory of God, there is nothing that is hidden... So therefore, when we think about hidden faults, there is nothing hidden from God, and that's the strand that then gets picked up later. Second stanza, when we're thinking about Torah, we change language, we change ideas at this point in the psalm. And some people like to wonder what the word law means. Well, I would say you don't need to wonder very long. Because in verses 7 to 10, they use six different words to describe the word law. It's almost as though the the psalmist had his thesaurus to one side while he was writing and saying, what other words could I use? So he talks about law, decrees, precepts, commandments, the fear of the Lord, which comes from encountering God, and ordinances. So what are they talking about? They're talking about the way in which God speaks to us. They're not looking at a particular book. Sometimes people like to say, well, is it the first five books, or is it the entirety of Scripture, or is it um, other bits? The answer is all of it and none of it. It is what God speaks to us. But then notice the verbs that are used, connected with those reviving, making wise, rejoicing, enlightening, enduring, and making righteous. There's something beautiful about the language that's used of Torah. So the idea is that you begin your meditation outside, looking upwards at the glory of creation. From the general, you then turn to the particular, to dwelling with God's spirit speeches to us, what God says to us. What John Eaton does rather nicely is describes the Torah as the son of the soul, which I think is lovely here. So the son has brought life to creation and then Torah, like the son, brings life to the soul. And then we end with verses 11 to 14. And one of the really interesting things is if you're paying attention by now, you can see the dynamic of prayer from the general recognizing God in creation to the particular hearing God speak to the self. Verses 11 to 14 are about meditating on yourself. And the thing that I think is really interesting is the psalmist talking about the hidden faults, which he clearly thinks are hidden from himself. So he isn't sure what his faults are. But he knows that the Son from which nothing is hidden, God from whom nothing is hidden, sees those faults that are not clear even to him. So there is, I think, something of a beautiful dynamic going on in this psalm and gives us a rather good pattern for prayer. How do you pray? You begin by looking at the world around you and recognising that God can be seen in the glory of creation. You continue by meditating on the words of God and hearing their reviving, enlightening, delicious tones to our soul. And then we turn to ourselves, and we meditate on who we are in the light of God. It isn't the only way you can pray, but it's quite a good start if you're stuck for thinking of something. It's not for nothing that the last verse of the psalm is said by many preachers before they begin preaching. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. There's something perfect about that. And what I would say is that that verse encapsulates the entirety of the psalm. The words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart beginning in creation, continuing through God's words, and then reflecting self-critically on who we are and how we relate to God.
3: is neither speech nor language, but their voices are heard among them, the sound is good out into all. Cometh forth as a bridegroom out of his chamber and rejoices as a giant to run his course. The law converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure and giveth wisdom unto the simple. The statutes of the Lord. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous all together. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover by them is thy service, in keeping of them there is great reward. Who oh, can tell how oft he offenders Who oh, cleanse me from my sacred faults? Keep thy servant also from presumptuous sins, lest they get the dominion I be undefiled and innocent from the great offense.
2: Psalm 69. Prayer for deliverance from persecution. To the leader according to lilies of David. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold I have come into deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Many are those who would destroy me, my enemies who accuse me falsely. What I did not steal must I now restore. O God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Do not let those who hope In you be put to shame because of me, O Lord God of hosts. Do not let those who seek you be dishonored because of me, O God of Israel. It is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that shame has covered my face I have become a stranger to my kindred, an alien to my mother's children. It is zeal for your house that has consumed me. The insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. When I humbled my soul with fasting, they insulted me for doing so. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the subject of gossip for those who sit in the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord. At an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love. Answer me. With your faithful help, rescue me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Do not let the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Do not hide your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to me, redeem me, set me free because of my enemies. You know the insults I receive and my shame and dishonour. My foes are all known to you. Insults have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Let their table be a trap for them, a snare for their allies. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and rebuild the cities of Judah, and his servants shall live there and possess it. The children of his servants shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall live in it.
1: a psalm of disorientation. I think it's a better description of this kind of psalm. The traditional description is psalms of lament. And the problem with calling them psalms of lament is it sounds as though someone is sitting in the corner, crying a bit. That's not what this psalm is about nor is it what many of these Psalms are about. This person is angry, furious with God, and determined that God should hear their anger. And I think it is very important for us when we think about the Psalms, to remind ourselves that as well as the more acceptable emotions found in the Psalms, you find what you might call less acceptable emotions, full fury. I've had more conversations with people than I can count who say to me, I feel so angry with God and I don't know what to do with it. To which I always boringly respond, pray a psalm. They got there before you there's something I think very important about recognizing that anger is an entirely acceptable emotion for us to express to God. What we don't know is what God ever said back. We might find out if we try it ourselves. But I think there's something very significant about recognizing the importance of the anger. You will notice that when we read this psalm tonight, we didn't read it all. And we didn't read it all because it's 36 verses long and um, we didn't want to keep you all night. But what I did do was include the end of the psalm because it shifts really strikingly a few verses before the end. So most of it is, as you heard it so beautifully read just now, full of deep, venting anger. You can almost hear the psalmist saying, and another thing. But suddenly, at the end, the tone changes. And the tone changes to confidence in God. It's worth us noting that all of these psalms end that way with one exception. And the one exception is Psalm 88. Psalm 88 begins miserable, carries on miserable, and ends miserable. No, let up from it anywhere through. And what's interesting, if you care about these kinds of things, is the Psalter, um, the the book of Psalms, if you were to write it all out on a scroll and then fold it in half, and believe me, people have done this, um, the psalm you would have right in the middle is Psalm 88. It doesn't work according to numbering because, of course, Psalm 119 throws off your middle of the psalm. But Psalm 88 is the actual absolute dead center of the Psalter. And what's very interesting for those of us who are interested in the psalms as a book is that the first half of the psalms have more psalms of disorientation in them. It's not all of them, but more of them. The second half of the psalter has more psalms of orientation and reorientation in them. And right in the centre is the psalm that is most miserable, Psalm 88. Just interesting to know that. So it's worth us reading the whole Psalter and tracing it through. The other thing to know about Psalm 69 is that Psalm 69 became one of the Christian Psalms, by which I mean that Christians picked it up very early on. So it is cited a number of times in the New Testament when reflecting on Jesus. If you know your New Testament, two phrases may have jumped out at you while you heard it read. Verse 9, see zeal of your house consumed me, which is a reference in the Gospels to Jesus cleansing the temple. And verse 21, for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink, which is cited around Jesus' crucifixion in the Gospels. So the gospel writers saw this psalm as referring particularly to Jesus. But of course, it doesn't originally. For its life before the New Testament, and for those Jews who continue to pray it week in and week out today, it does not refer to Jesus. It refers to anyone who experiences this kind of experience. So the question is, What kind of experience? What happened to the psalmist to make him, and I'm suspecting it was a him, him say this? There are various theories it will surprise you to know. One is that he was ill. Another is that his family was cross with him and had spread rumors about him. Another is that he stole something or he was falsely accused of having stolen something. And yet another was that this is a king speaking who tried to reorder the temple without the permission of the priests and suffered subsequently. I say this with the new dean sitting on the front row. It may or may not be any of those things. In a way, it doesn't matter what it is. And in a way, the point and the vibrancy of this psalm is that we don't know what it was that caused the psalmist to say what he does. What does matter is that he is in deepest, deepest despair. And from the middle of his despair, he cried out to God. And if you were listening carefully, you might have heard A theological debate going on in the psalm and it's worth just listening to it because it's an important one that still rears its head today. Did the psalmist suffer what he suffered because he had done something wrong? Again today people still ask this question, am I going through this because of what I did or because of what somebody else did? or for some weird vengeance motive that God has that I don't understand. And one of the important things to recognize about this psalm is that actually the answer lurking all around this psalm is no, absolutely not. If you do not understand why it has happened, then it is not your fault. And one of the things that comes over and over again in the Psalms, it comes out in the book of Job, you find it in the book of Proverbs and in the Prophets, all the way through the Old Testament, this question. Do bad things happen when you do bad things? The answer is no. You might like to think that bad things will happen to those other people who are currently doing bad things, but that's not what God believes. And one of the really interesting things is this conversation flows onwards through the Old Testament and onwards into the New Testament, picked up again in John's Gospel. That human beings might think that bad things happen to bad people, but the Old Testament writers, the New Testament writers, don't really think that. And you can find over and over again, a reflection on this theme. And the thing I love about this psalm, Psalm 69, is that what you get is the sense, the reason why we can't work out what's happened to this psalmist, is because he is bewildered. And you get this overwhelming sense of bewilderment from him. I just don't understand is what you hear over and over again. Why is this happening to me? And when we've been through hard times, that is the question that comes to mind most often. Why? Why is this happening to me? Of course, the Psalms are the psalmists talking to God, not God talking to the psalmists. So we don't get an answer if you want to read a bit of bible which tries at an answer you need to read the end of the book of job because the end of the book of job is fumbling towards an answer of why this happens it's not a very complete answer the person who comes up with a good answer will be the best theologian ever but actually no one's ever really come up with a good answer what we do is simply sit and say we don't know. We don't understand ourselves. But then the psalmist moves on, and it's the moving on, which for me is one of the most important things. So verses 1 to 12 of this psalm are of the psalmist going, why is this happening to me? The second half, verse 13 to 22, actually is the psalmist turning around and saying, I know who God is, and I am confident that this God will not let this go on forever. It is an angry prayer, but it's an angry prayer of rebellion that says, this is who God is. This is who I know God to be, and this is not what this God would allow to happen to me. It's a real cry of protest and that's why I think these psalms are really important to read and read carefully because we begin by saying, we don't understand. But the second half, the response is, but the God who created the world, the God who loves us, does not let this happen forever to the people who love him. What we don't know in our lifetime is how long that forever goes on. The forever, as you will remember from reading your Old Testament, can sometimes go on an awfully long time. Think, I, um, think Abraham and Sarah, waiting for the birth of their child, where they got older and older and older and older, and still they waited. So I'm not saying it's a magic stone that turns all to gold but I am saying that it is a right and proper piece of prayer God this is who we know you to be we know you are a God of steadfast love anytime now you would like to act we're ready and now and now it's one that I've been praying of late you might like to join me I'd like to end this section. I've retranslated one verse because for me it sums up the howl of pain that comes out of this psalm. And it's verse 20. So I will read it before the choir sings the next setting of the psalm. Disgrace has broken my heart and I am sick. I hoped for comfort but there was none and for people to support me and I found no one.
3: i yeah.
2: Psalm 23, the divine shepherd, a Psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord my whole life long.
1: A psalm of Reorientation, Looking back to walking through the dark valley and knowing that God is with us. It is many people's favourite psalm. I have to confess, it isn't my favourite psalm. Um, it's in my top 25, but it's not my favourite. It's still quite good though, isn't it? Especially when read as well as has just been read. A few things to notice about it. The first is, of course, the most famous. The Lord is my shepherd. But it's worth us just noting what is surprising about that if you know your Old Testament. Because if you know your Old Testament, you will know that God is often described as shepherd in the Old Testament. But what is unusual here is that normally God is described as the shepherd of the entire flock. It's a communal image that is used over and over again to describe how God looks after God's people and also how God delegates the care to kings and prophets and priests And from time to time, the kings and prophets and priests are told off for not looking after the flock properly. But this is the only place in the Old Testament where somebody says, God is my shepherd. It becomes an individual statement. And as you will know, I'm sure, it was picked up and taken on in John 10 to Jesus as the good shepherd. But this is the kernel of the idea that then grew onwards. The other thing that may surprise you is that the Hebrew doesn't literally say the Lord is my shepherd. What it says is the Lord shepherds me. You can translate it as the Lord is my shepherd but I think a better translation is the Lord shepherds me. It's a dynamic verb, not just a description of what's going on. And I think that changes the tone of it. The Lord shepherds me through my life. It's an ongoing idea that it never stops. And then the psalm goes on to describe how the Lord shepherds me. I lack nothing he finds rest and nourishment for me. He leads me to water. And while those images are really vivid for us, they're even more vivid in the Middle East, where nourishment was particularly hard to find for a sheep flock, even more so water. The significance, you will note, of still water is still water is that from which you can drink, as opposed to a torrent of water that might sweep you away because heavy rains have just fallen. So there's something beautiful about this image of God leading the flock. And then you get two additional phrases in the psalm. He revives my soul or brings my soul back to life. There is the idea, if you you read this psalm immediately after the previous psalm that we just have read, you will note that in the previous psalm, the psalmist says, I'm close to death, I don't know what's going on. In this psalm, the psalmist says, the God who rescues me rescues my soul from death and leads me along tracks of righteousness. It's a gloriously double-meaning phrase that. It can either mean safe tracks, as in tracks you won't fall off, or the tracks that lead to right living. And one of the things that the psalmist does very cleverly in this psalm is play with his metaphor. Are we talking about sheep, or are we talking about people? He reveals his hand very spectacularly towards the end of the psalm when he talks about a table being set. I don't know about you, but I don't often see sheep sitting at a table. Unless, incidentally, you've been in Paternoster Square recently where they've got an art installation. So what the psalmist is doing is using a metaphor and revealing that, of course, he's talking about people. And then the psalm moves into the dark valley, what is often translated as the shadow of death. And I don't know if you noticed, but something really important happens at that key moment in the psalm. Until that moment, the psalm has been in the third person. The Lord shepherds me, this happens, that happens. And then in, as soon as we start into the dark valley, the pronoun changes from him to you. So then the psalmist addresses God as you. The personal relationship moves up one step. The psalmist is now talking directly to God. And you will know, I'm sure, that one of the key themes that runs all the way through the Bible is the theme of God being with us. Beautifully expressed in the name Emmanuel from Isaiah 7. Emmanuel, God with us. And that idea of the shepherd constantly, never failingly, being with us. So that the track that we are on is a safe track. It's important to notice that The psalmist does not say, the Lord shepherds me, and therefore I never need to go anywhere near any dark valleys. But the Lord shepherds me, and therefore when I'm in the dark valley, I know that God is with me. It's a very important distinction, that the idea of the God as shepherd is not the one to take you out of difficult times, but to be with you in the difficult times. And then at the end of this particular section, we have that phrase, your rod and your staff comfort me. I don't know if you've ever taken time to think about that as a phrase. If someone were to come to me with their comfort kit, their rod and staff would not be what I would be expecting as they knocked on my front door. And it alerts us to the fact that actually the word comfort means something different to us now than it has done historically. The word comfort literally comes from Latin, with strength, come with thought strength. And until about the 18th or early 19th century, the word comfort meant strength, not strength there, there, everything's going to be all right. And my favourite illustration of this um, can be found in the Bayeux Tapestry, which is way earlier than the 18th century, obviously. But in the Bayeux Tapestry, you get a glorious moment as you go round the tapestry where um, we encounter Bishop Odo. And Bishop Odo was William the Conqueror's brother. And Bishop Odo was sitting high on his horse with his club far above his head. And underneath the Latin text reads, Bishop Odo comforts his troops. And it gives you the sense of what is meant by the word comfort. The word comfort means given you strength to carry on. Um, if you were wanting another illustration, Bishop Odo gives his troops a kick up the backside is what the word is probably meaning in that context, and I think it's what is meant here in Psalm 23. Your rod and your staff strengthen us to carry on. They don't just say, there, there, everything's going to be fine, which if I am honest, is the worst comfort that anyone can ever bring you, because I always want to say you don't know that it's going to be fine. You would like it to be fine, but you don't know that it is. But actually having someone come to say, let me give you the strength to carry on. I'm much more interested in that form of comfort. So we have this wonderful image of a shepherd who is with God's people through thick and through thin, Even when they enter the darkest valley, God is with them and says, here I am with you. And then gloriously, because the biblical writers have never been to that English literature or English language lesson that says, never mix your metaphors, they did mix their metaphors all over the place, and here they did again because they suddenly moved from sheep and shepherds and dark valleys and rods and staff into a banqueting table. And the idea is that it flows on in your mind, even though the metaphor doesn't fit. And what you get then is a movement from subsistence, strength to carry on, into ridiculous lavishness. You anoint my head with oil, Literally, the Hebrew says, my head is fat with oil. There's so much oil, my head expands. The table is set with ridiculous quantities of food because the God who is our shepherd, the God who cares for us, who sees us through the hardest times, is the God who pours out lavish extravagance upon us. And that's the image that's going on here in the psalm. I'd like to leave you with a couple of thoughts, both of which rather intrigue me, is that we've been talking about following the shepherd and following the shepherd through the dark valley. And the psalm ends by saying, goodness and loving kindness pursue me. And it's the word that you would use for an enemy chafing at your heels and running after you and it's a rather lovely image. We've moved from being in the dark valley where we're not sure whether we'll get through to love and loving kindness and goodness pursuing us all the days of our life, right on our heels. If you turn around for long enough, you'll see God's loving kindness. What a lovely image that is. And then the final thought to um, dwell with is the word right at the end, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Actually, again, not quite an accurate translation. The real translation is I shall return to the house of the Lord forever. Return again and again and again. And again, what you get is this lovely image of you go out to find pasture. I think, again, of John 10. You go out to find nourishment led by God, but loving kindness will pursue you back to God's house over and over again. And for me, that makes it a rather beautiful image to end with. As we end this night, let's our hearts to, into the presence of God. In the stillness of this holy place, may we hear the echoes of the psalms sung for centuries swirling around us. And we pray this night for those who rejoice, whose delight in God is strong and unfailing. We hold in our hearts those who feel that the waters have risen up to their neck or who are walking through the darkest of dark valleys. And we give thanks to the loving shepherd who leads us and is with us through good times and bad, and who lavishes on us A never ending love. Amen.